Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gaze. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm Charles Rogers. And I'm Erin Llewellyn. Erin, welcome back. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It is lovely to have you back, um, talking with us about this episode. Now, I brought you back for several reasons, and I also... You know, I mentioned on a previous episode that I was very excited for some of those reasons. But before we dive into it, Erin, have you been up to anything interesting? I did get a new phone. That is very exciting. (laughs) It is exciting. I'm trying to get used to an entirely new interface and... Did you switch from... Now, this is an important question for our, our gay male listeners in particular, because we really mm-hmm. care about this. Did you switch from Android to iPhone or vice versa? Oh, no, uh, it's just a new kind of Android phone. Uh, I'm just not good at eh. learning new arrangements. Got it. It's a Pixel. It is a phone type uh, brand name redacted. Yeah, I was gonna say we're not we're not being sponsored by said. <laughs> so uh, you can sponsor us though if you want advertisers. Right. You can pay me. I'll put you in the show. Right. I'll randomly bring up uh, whatever phone uh, when talking about Star Wars because that'll it'll connect perfectly. <laughs> so I don't think that we actually have any news, Bradley. You said you you watched the recap video. I mean, there is news, but I don't think any of it is relevant to us. Um, none of it is relevant to us. Uh, as of this recording, if you're listening uh, in the future, uh, Visions has aired last week, um, and it was great. We loved it. It was the, the uh, best episode we've ever seen. Um, <laughs> he's he's pretending that he's already. <laughs> I think I think Bradley. What what I wish we could do is you know maybe it, we could get the screeners at some point. That way, I when wish. we record these episodes nine days out. Oh my God, can you imagine? Oh, if they, yeah, God. they had sent us screeners for Vision, I would have been fucking dead. I would have been like, oh my God, all my friends, come come to my house. We'll just watch it on my computer. <laughs> just crowd them all in a room. I would have. Exactly. That's, uh, yeah, because we're going to have a couple of days. We're going to have like a two week or so delay, even if we record our episode real quick. Yeah, there's we'll there's pros and cons to doing the episodes like we do when the current shows come out where there's only like a two-day turnaround time and even that is a super long turnaround time right when we do these nine days out it's like we can't keep up on everything that's happening <laughs> right that's now, fine though a friend of mine a friend of mine who uh knows that i was once on this podcast before when he saw that you guys were covering bad batch back to back like this he was like holy shit, look at these guys. They, they're just going for it through Bad Batch. Damn. So you've impressed at least one person. Hey, that's Excellent. all that we strive for. It's <laughs> one. That's all that we strive person. for. <laughs> we only need one person to listen to the show and like it. Right. He, he and his wife, my best friend, they both love Star Wars too. So, oh. yeah. Well, shout out to them. We love them. Shout out to you, whoever you are, Aaron's <laughs> friends. All right. Well, if we don't have any news this week, which we don't, uh, right? I mean, I could talk about the High Republic cover reveals, but then, uh, like Bradley would fly out of here and clock me across the head. (laughs) 
let's uh, let's dive into the episode. So this week, the Mandalorian reunites Frog Lady with her husband, uh, braves the high seas, and meets unexpected allies. Aaron, name one thing about this episode you liked and one thing you did not. Oh my god, I actually didn't prepare for this part. <laughs> my, my deeply detailed notes. Uh, one thing I... I just really liked Bo-Katan. <laughs> I liked Takedi yeah. Sackoff. Uh, I liked that we saw a new planet biome. Point to one thing exactly. I love how they finally, after all this time, introduced some conflicting narratives as per the historical and cultural background of Mandalorians. Because I've been mm. waiting for this moment to be like, wait, this ain't right based on the other Mandalorians I've seen. That was a huge point, too. I remember when the show was first airing in season one, I remember there's a lot of people who were like big into Rebels and big into Clone Wars. And when they were talking authoritatively about the Mandalorians and the rules that they set up in season one were different. People were like, if if Mandalorians can't remove their helmets, then why why are people removing their helmets all the time in Clone Wars and Rebels? what's going on here and and this was the episode that definitively answered what was going on there beautiful way of painting this is the knowledge of the protagonist we're going in with the knowledge of the protagonist and slowly revealing the reality beyond their experience as we go it's really great a thing i didn't like uh i didn't like that because i had no idea who she was when i was watching the episode because i didn't Uh. watch clone wars or rebels i was like she seems like a cool lady. She looks familiar. Oh my gosh, it's Katie Sackoff. <laughs> Are we supposed to know who this is? Because right. they, they do introduce yeah. her with this like gravitas of yeah, yeah, you yeah. ought to know who this is. I'm like, am I it's who? definitely fan service. I'll, I'll give you that. Like, <laughs> I, I know they're relying on that. They're relying on people having a bit of an understanding, and they want to make you go and watch the other things but as an outsider to that part of the canon i definitely felt like i it's very obvious that i'm missing something and i don't like that feeling of not knowing something because i I like to know things always didn't like that one thing i really liked about the episode was the way that it the way that it comes in it gets the job done and it leaves that Mm -hmm. the episode doesn't feel too short or too long it feels like they could have like you see where they could have padded it and they didn't this episode is it's only 35 minutes long it's only like 30 if you cut if you cut out the beginning and end credits and recap it's in it's out but it does also doesn't feel like it's rushed it tells the precise amount of story that it needed to tell and you can see where they could have dragged it out by adding more conflict between Din and Bo-Katan, they don't. It's, here's who we are, here's what we're doing, we're going to do the freighter heist, which takes up half the episode, and then we're out. Uh, in, out, done. One thing I disliked, though, I'm going to note that, that later on, that Trask, the planet that they're on, or rather, I think the moon that they're on, is not a, it's a new planet. It's a totally new planet. Uh, I felt like we could have seen a little bit more of it. Like it feels like they stick to the port and then they go out on the boat and come back and they're in the freighter 
and they're back and it's basically the same like three locations in the port and -hmm. then that's it we don't really get to see a lot of this planet and we don't get to see what makes it different than other water biomes we've seen in other star wars media so i wish we could have varied up the locations a little bit in the port Mm -hmm. you can i think do that and tell the same story but that would be the only it was hard to pick something i disliked in this episode because this was a really solid this may be my favorite episode of the season thus far and i I even put that above the one with the gay subtext in it. Uh, we'll find out in our rankings more later. More specific. <laughs> uh, go, go rewatch the scene between Cobb Vanth and Din Djarin in season, oh. season oh, two, yeah. episode I... one. And there's some, there's some gay shit going on there. Oh, don't worry. I Just saying. Don't worry, <laughs> don't worry. Din Cobb is, is very popular. There's another ship with Din in it. Like, people are shipping Din Djarin and Luke Skywalker. Apparently, like, this is a big deal. Like, it, it ranked really high on, like, a list of Interesting. ship polls that they did recently, which Canera won correctly. It's the only acceptable heterosexual couple is Kanan and Hera. But Din Luke got pretty high up on the list, and I'm like, why? Co-parenting vibes? I hate that you put that thought into my head now, and I love it. You hate it, but you love it. I hate it, but I kind of love it. (laughs) Bradley, what's one thing about the episode you liked and one thing you didn't? Um, One thing I liked and actually kind of loved was the translation of Bo-Katan from cartoon to live action i felt like her costume her just the armor that she's wearing the whole episode like this first time you from the first time you see it to just like every action shot every like glamour shot they did on her like i just thought it looked so well made i was like i believe that she's wearing that outfit i believe it's heavy i believe it's real armor like i i don't know i just it translated so well because i feel like sometimes cartoons it looks ridiculous sometimes if you try to translate it to live action depending on the show and what it is. And I, you know, it could have gone very cosplay-y if they weren't careful, um, just because it is from Rebels and, you know, Rebels and Clone Wars has like a very stylistic component to the animation. And so sometimes the weathering on the uh, on the armor can look more like paint mm-hmm. instead of actual like weathering. You know what I mean? So... Mm-hmm. It depends, but I think the armoring, like the armor she wore and all the other um, members of her squad, I think they all looked really good. So I, that's the one thing I like, just the costumes. This episode was my favorite. And then one thing I didn't like, um, I know that, and this kind of translates into this episode was also written by John Favreau. So the first three episodes were all written by John Favreau. And it makes sense because that explains kind of like, why they're kind of a trilogy. Right. It's kind of this three-part, you know, kind of story arc, um, which is fine. And I don't mind that. It just, I didn't care for the, like, unnecessary scenes, I'll say. Because, like, you, I mean, arguably, like we said last week, when there were some scenes that you can cut, like, that you don't need. This, this is kind of a similar situation, whereas anything with Baby Yoda in this episode and the frog people, theoretically, you could have taken out. I mean, they could have done this stuff in the end of the last episode 
and then just left it and then like you know what i mean like it felt I mean, like it felt like with the baby yoda and the frog people scenes that they were kind of in there to provide an excuse to not have baby yoda on the freighter right because mm-hmm. he's like there's only two after they're reunited it's the one where he drops baby yoda off and the one where he picks baby yoda up right on the other hand i i did really love the idea of baby yoda just hanging out with this frog couple (laughs) like it's so cute it's so cute but then you need to show me longer scenes with them like i need to see like a funnier interaction a funnier like you know i need more from that yeah, they could have they could have thrown one into the middle of the freighter heist. Just it might have broken up the tension. It might have broken yeah. up the action somewhat. But it also like you're right now that I think about it, and you know it wouldn't be maybe another minute to say here we're going to cut back to to Baby Yoda being right. adorable for a minute. Yeah, yeah, it definitely felt like all right, we need a babysitter. Good thing we introduced the frog couple. <laughs> right. It is interesting real fast before we jump into the episode to note that at the start of the season, he takes the baby into this like dingy fight club environment on the mm-hmm. grounds that wherever I go, he goes. And then he has uh, now this episode left baby Yoda behind. Apparently that, that was revisited slightly the whole wherever i go he goes thing because right. he was willing to leave him with a babysitter that time that was my final thought on that yeah we'll see how 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 things evolve with this interaction as opposed to past interactions with outsiders well let's get into it our episode begins with the razor crest crashing into the trask ocean uh, after being pulled from the water, Frog Lady is finally reunited with her husband. Baby Yoda is still hungry, and a mysterious woman in a hood watches the group from afar. Uh, at the end, Mando gets some info on where to find more Mandalorians, and Baby Yoda plays with his chowder. Did either of you catch the reference in the opening scene, what that was a reference to? Because I didn't. The opening scene, which part? Just of the crash? Of the crash, of the re-entry uh is it from like interstellar or something like i don't know what's supposed to be <laughs> let's talk about who this episode is directed by oh uh, okay that's let's right jump i keep ahead. forgetting you want to jump ahead okay that's fine let's do it let's jump ahead to to who this episode is directed by uh, because okay. we have mentioned it was written by john favreau but bradley who was this episode directed by surprisingly and this will color the way that i approached this episode but was shocked by the end it was uh directed by bryce dallas howard now bryce dallas howard is the daughter of ron howard who is a prolific director um he directed solo a star wars story but one of the other things that he directed was a little historical movie called Apollo 13, mm. which is only one of oh. the most famous space movies of all time. <laughs> yeah. And the re-entry scene at the end of Apollo 13 is what apparently this intro sequence was a reference to. Gotcha. Because I have a 13 re-entry was uh, a, a dicey. <laughs> yep. And that same sequence, like I talked to, I have in my notes here how the, the top-down shot mm-hmm. where the, the thing is dropping away from the camera towards the planet is really mm-hmm. freaky. 
part of the reason why it's shot that way is it's a reference to her father's arguably most famous movie. Oh, okay. Uh, that makes sense. It does make sense. I also like that it's kind of, it's in my notes, I, re- I, I know that I, I really like how it's grounded in the reality of re-entry into an atmosphere. They're becoming a meteor. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I also like that too, because normally in Star Wars, we don't see that stuff, right? They either skip over that part or it, they're going so fast that it doesn't happen usually. The only time we've ever really mm-hmm. seen a re-entry like that was in, I think, was Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith. They crash the... They crash the giant half ship. the invisible hand. Right, exactly. So that's the only time we've ever seen it, and that's because they're entering the atmosphere at a greater speed than they... Or a non-controlled speed. So usually in Star Wars, we see a controlled speed entry. So it's like they know how fast they want to go. They know like when they want to come out of it. So there's never the flames and the fire. (laughs) Usually your ship is working properly. Right. I loved how we got like the condensation on the on the window, Mm -hmm. like to show that that would actually that's that's one of the things that happens it's one of the challenges that astronauts have to face when they're on re-entry is that the outside of the ship is gonna have condensation on it or the outside of the inside one of them but like it'll mess with instruments if something yeah. goes wrong the same goes for aircraft in general there's so many things when it comes to pressure when you get that high up it's so cold and everything just goes haywire. And then when you're dropping at that rate, it's 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 very dangerous. Our dank ferret count is now at three. Yes, I wrote down dank ferret count. Well, for it, this episode, this is number is. one. So I wrote down dank ferret count one and I was like, oh, the total's gone up. <laughs> the total's gone to three. They're bringing it up. No, so I did notice like, this is where we start to see it because I think last time we said, like, I know that it, they say it a bunch this season. We just didn't realize when they said it. And I think this is when it kind of starts because I think we get two this episode. So we're like, all right, well, yeah. this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> it became memed, I think. I think it was said like once in season one in the pro, in the like the premiere episode and it got memed to hell. So they started putting in it more. Right. Or maybe it's like, I don't know what language it's supposed to be from, but it made me think since it's said by a particular character made me go is that a mandalorian phrase i, I think never it thought might be. about it yeah i didn't either but i think you might be right i think it might they have their own language mm-hmm. yeah i think it might specifically oh man i didn't even realize that it might specifically like the way carabast yeah is specifically i think specifically a lasat right swear but then Pow uses it on uh, Scarif in Rogue One, and Ezra picks it up from Zeb. Right. But I, I'd have to. I never I, even thought that Dank might, might specifically be Mandalorian. It might be, yeah. Maybe because... Mandalorian as a language is like the German of the universe that you, that setting. So it's like everybody knows the swear words. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's true. You're, you're, you're actually right. I think it might be like that kind of like because everybody knows how to say bad words in Spanish. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. it's yeah. like the same kind of situation. Like everybody knows, everybody knows what you know. All the bad words are in Spanish, so it's like the kind of same thing. You can just say the same stuff. So it's the last thing to go upon assimilation. And when you're talking about like a galaxy-spanning civilizations, then you know you're only the best. Only the best swears are going to make their way. 
right into the common lexicon it's mm-hmm. a it's a battle royale for different ways to say fuck right mm-hmm. oh linguistics mm-hmm. the planet or the moon rather i correct mm-hmm. myself here the moon that they crash onto is called trask mm-hmm. i thought in the trailer they might be on moncala uh yeah they are not uh they are actually not even on a moon of moncala uh, they're mm-hmm. on a moon of a gas giant called, I think, I didn't write this down, Cole Iben, I think is the name yeah. of the gas giant that the Razor Crest kind of comes around right. to approach Trask. I don't know why it couldn't have been Moncala, but I, I, I guess, yeah, I guess well, they wanted. You'd think so because literally the only people who live on this planet are Corrin and Mon Calamari. So it makes no sense like why they wouldn't just make it, you know. But it's it's not a, a moon of I guess it's a colony. Like yeah. they have they've introduced this concept, uh, but they have like different planets will have different colonies. So in the new um in the new audio drama Tempest Runner, which is interesting. When we do our uh, eventual High Republic episode, I'll talk about audio dramas. Uh, but they've done a few of them and they're actually a really interesting medium. Uh, but in the audio drama Tempest Runner, Lorda D, who is one of the main antagonists of the High Republic era, she comes from a Rylothian colony mm. world. She's not from Ryloth, she's from one of their colony worlds. So I think this is a colony, probably a colony world of uh, Mon Cala, which is why they have both Corn and Mon Calamari on there. Did you pick up the crane, Bradley? Aaron, I don't expect you to have picked this up, but Bradley yeah. likes Solo, so. I didn't, what's funny is I didn't even write it in my notes, but I just remember it. Like I don't have to write it down. So it's just something that I just sticks and out in my brain. Um, that yes, uh, the crane was clearly, uh, um, Imperial Walker slash whatever's on top. <laughs> well, we've also seen things like that before in the distance, right. in the background of another Ron Howard directed movie, Solo, a Star Wars story. Right. So he she used like the same machine. We'll call them machines. The same machines are in Solo that are in this uh, mm-hmm. scene. See, Clone Wars directors, this is how you put in homages to your parents work without it being awkward and stilted i'm sorry i have lots lots of notes on this section i know bradley condensed it but i have lots of notes. i know it's it. hard because like we literally <laughs> I, I literally try to keep it all in one little small little section because nothing really i didn't think anything major happens in the section but there is so many little tiny there's things. just tons of little stuff it's such a good episode. I have so many notes on I, this part uh the only thing the only thing that uh I'm dedicated to mentioning is that uh, made me think of uh, this whole scene made me think of Top Gun. <laughs> Top Gun. Okay, Why? so when you're trying to land an aircraft okay. on a runway that's in on the water, it's already hard enough <laughs> if you're not like entering an atmosphere and there's a baby on board and an aquarium full of babies. You, you have as as. As, as explained by the documentary film featuring Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, and just the, the most glorious soundtrack of all time, we all know that it's a danger zone. <laughs> I've only seen the volleyball scene from Top Gun. We've all seen the volleyball scene from Top Gun. I've never I, seen Top Gun, so. It's fun. 
more more references in the details here. Uh, uh, it came out after the fact. She is uncredited in the episode. Uh, but the nostril operator of the Mon Calamari dock worker, so the person who who specifically did the nostrils, is moving the face again. Okay. Is a specifically the nostrils is a uh, woman named Janina Gavankar. Okay. And Janina Gavankar is best known for being the face and voice of Aiden Versio in Battlefront 2. Oh, that's so random. <laughs> like, she was just randomly there. They brought her in to work the nostrils. Hey, can you make sure you flare his nostrils whenever he's talking about this thing? And da, 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 like, <laughs> Yeah, the, the woman who actually did that was Aiden Versio from best known from Battlefront 2, but she also appears in uh, the book... Uh, Battlefront 2 uh, Inferno Squad by Christy Golden. Uh, and also, fun fact, I have her Lego minifigure. So you should get her to sign it for you. That was So that was a little kind of cameo. She's not credited, but if you've right, played right. Battlefront 2, uh, which Bradley, I know you haven't because you only own a Switch. Right. Uh, because, you know, you are a twink. For the rest of us who've actually played video games, uh, she was in Battlefront 2. Did uh, any of us ever become famous because Charles will certainly acquire a Lego figurine of us? Oh, oh definitely. God, I know, right? Without question. I, I know someone, I'm not going to say who it is, but I know someone in one thing that they do that is really cool because uh, they live here in Los Angeles and so they know people that have had merchandise made of them. And they actually on display in their house have a little area where they have merchandise of their friends that have been made. Oh, that's cool. So that's definitely 100% something that I would do if I know somebody who had like a Lego minifigure of them, I would immediately oh, go and get it. Voodoo dolls. 100%. That's all I'm thinking is voodoo dolls. Poppets. <laughs> I promise we're coming to the end of my towards the end of the notes for my se- my <laughs> notes for this sequence. The woman in the hood we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. I don't know it here, but we'll talk about her later. The right, only right. other reference that I had is the way he pays the Mon Calamari for information. He uses a Mon Calamari flan right. that he got from Grief Karga all the way back in season one, episode one. He was paid Mon Calamari Flan by Rick Carga all the way back in season one, episode one. Up next, the boat ride goes horribly wrong as the Corrin sailors try to commit murder against Baby Yoda while trying to feed him to their sea monster. Uh, thankfully, the day is saved by some mysterious Mandalorians who end up taking off their helmets, shocking Mando to his cult-raised core. Yeah. I have yeah. one non- Mandalorian, two non-Mandalorian notes here that I'm going to blow through real fast. Okay. I love how Baby Yoda closes his own pod. Yes, he's smart if enough you look, to... Yeah. If you look very closely, he is, like we talked about how in episode one he does it. Yeah. It's clearly some sort of training that Mando mm-hmm. has done. Like protect that, yourself. He has said, if you are in danger, close the pod immediately. And Baby Yoda realizes, okay, I'm about to be eaten. And if you look, he actually reaches around and closes the pot himself. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other note I had is that our dank ferret count is now at four. 
Yes. Wait, is it four now? No, it's four it's now for the overall okay. series. It's two for this episode. Two for this episode. Okay. And funny enough, it's said by Bo Katan. So I thought that was weird because it's like that they both said it in this episode each, but then it's like she just kind of just says it no, like it's normal. Like she always says it. So I thought I was like, all right, let's throw that out there again. But I like it. I like that that integration of the world building again. My theory is that maybe it is from Mandalorian, mm-hmm. the language. Exactly. Um, one thing I will note in this scene, which is interesting, you know, in the past, you know, everything again has been about Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda, and this is probably I think this is only the second time where no, in this season we talked about this in the first episode how they're not necessarily after baby yoda they're after the mandalorian and his armor which is Mm, correct which is weird but i guess it makes sense because like what's more expensive or what's worth it to you is like the money you can make from selling his armor or you know the child which there might be some bounty on out there but we will also see later on that moff gideon has clearly switched like he was using bounty hunters in the first season Mm-hmm. to go after Mando the guild is not going after him now that they've been kicked off the the Imperials have been mostly kicked off of Navarro so the guild is mm-hmm. no longer going after the child he switched it up so it the people that are going to be trapping Mando now are going to be doing it for the Beskar armor because there's this mm-hmm. fucking kid that who gives a shit about right yeah I think outside of the people that are paid to be looking for this kid it's a need to know basis that there's a there's a baby yoda out there i think the average person in this universe is like the armorer mentions in season one this is going to make you a target because you have this valuable resource just on your person right let's talk about bo katan cries wait wait wait. let's leave let's leave her for last because i feel like we can skip her for last we, we can do the other two first and get through them quicker because I feel like bo going to take way too long. So we need okay. to... I know you Bradley, want to talk about her. She's great. I, I really do. Bradley, do I you know. want to educate us then on Casca uh, Reeves and Axe Woves? Yeah, let's do them first. So um, let's start with Casca Reeves, played by uh, stage name Sasha Banks. Her real name is Mercedes, because um, she is credited actually in the uh, credits as Mercedes and then her real last name. But uh, she, is known to, she is known to the world as Sasha Banks. Um, she is an American professional wrestler um, and mm-hmm. Sasha Banks is her stage name. Um, mm-hmm. I learned a fun fact about her in this episode, actually. That she likes to eat worms? <laughs> uh, so that is, that is, I think, some sort of noodle that she had to slurp. Okay. Like that was some sort of udon noodle or something that she had to slurp. Uh, fun fact about her in this episode, she is not doing a lot of her own stunts in this episode. Strange. Really? And the reason is because she is a professional wrestler. Uh, She has to go on and wrestle every week. It's a weekly thing. She has to go on and do it. Right. And so there was some concern that that she she didn't want to get injured doing the Mandalorian and have this affect her uh, wrestling career. That makes sense. She's actually actually not doing a lot of her own stunts in this. Mm -hmm. She absolutely 100% can do them, 
but because right. of her career concerns, she's actually not doing a lot of her own stunts. Well, I love the stunts she does do, like not the ones that she's actually doing, but her character is doing. Um, very physical stuff that her character does in this scene. And then mm-hmm. she proceeds to dive underwater in her outfit, right? Her armor. And then we don't get to see the action, which I was a little disappointed. We didn't get to get any underwater scenes, but it kind of makes sense, I guess. Um, because we kind of learned two things from this scene is one is because we see it with Mando a little bit. He uses his jetpack to get himself to the surface of the water. So he doesn't drown at one point. Mm-hmm. And then when she dives into the water to get baby Yoda back, we kind of see flashes in the water. Um, mm-hmm. So we know that she's using her jetpack to maneuver underwater and somehow get baby Yoda out of the monster but it was just such a cool idea. Like, I just wish we would have seen it. And the other guy is Axe Woves. Tell us a little bit about Axe Woves, Bradley. So he's a little more interesting um, only because he is also an actor. Um, Whereas Sasha Banks is obviously not an actor by nature. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, Axe Woves is played by Simon Cassianides. Cassianides. Cassianides, okay. I, I, I'm sorry to him. Um, Simon K. Our sincerest apologies for <laughs> yeah. butchering. I think it's um, Greek. Okay, because I know he's from the UK. <laughs> so um, anyway, Simon K. Um, known from, well, what at least I know him from, he has been on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, so he was... He oh, has, really? He has been on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with uh, Agent May. So uh, that's a little crossover right there. Um, oh he's got two yep he's got two he's both marvel and star wars but funny enough he is not the only person this episode that's from agents of shield so once we get there yeah i'll say it interesting um, so he was on agents of shield he played a hydra agent um on that but fun fact for you charles he was also on two episodes of how to get away with murder oh shit which Which episodes was he was he in oh i have no idea he's a two episode arc or something on that show. oh i have to look this up now because how (laughs) to get away with murder for our our new viewers who are are not as familiar uh with me and my tastes uh i consider how to get away with murder the best television show uh that has come (laughs) out in the last decade i think that the pilot is perfect uh, it is a note perfect pilot that you could you could teach a course going through beat by beat the pilot of how to get away with murder. Right. Okay. So yeah, I just fun, thought you would like that little fun me. fact. I did yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, I also have a fun story about Simon K. Okay. Is that according to Wikipedia, when I was doing some research, apparently he actually froze up when filming uh, his first scene. Uh, because he was so overwhelmed by just being immersed in Star Wars uh, because of the stormtroopers and the detailing on the elevator buttons. He did what I think all of us would do and froze up. Uh, And he actually had to ask the cast and crew to just give him a minute to just kind of be in this area because he couldn't concentrate on what he was doing. He was just so overwhelmed to actually <laughs> Which is be in a Star totally Wars. fair. Totally That's fair. So relatable. It's one of the <laughs> most it's one of the most magical things when you're on a period set like that 
Like I remember one of the first films in school that I ever worked on was, of course, a World War II film, you know, because there's one every year. You can go to the school that I went to, my alma mater, you could pick any given year and somebody's going to make a World War II period film. But I remember it being on set. And when when you get that distance, when you have that proximity to this almost other world, it is kind of jarring if you're doing it, you know, something, a period piece like this. So to be immersed in Star Wars to that degree, yeah, I would probably freeze too, frankly. Which is why I would never want my face to be visible if I was ever in a Star Wars project because I don't want to be able to see my face. So like if I were ever in a Star Wars project, I want to be either an alien with my face covered or I want to be a robot and just use my voice because I don't want on yourself, your face. I don't want the stress of being like, I need to emote with my face. Like I want to be able to like, just enjoy and rather than like have to like put myself in that situation. I want to be like, no, I'm just in the, I'm already in the world. I can be like, yep, that's me. I'm that robot right there. Like, you know the what I mean? The voice of like, the robot. Right. I would actually probably, that's exactly what I want. I want to be a droid. I don't want to be yes. a human and I don't want to be an alien. I want to be a droid. If I'm ever in a Star Wars thing, I want to be a droid. If I was ever in a Star Wars thing, I'd want to wear a uniform. That would be my thing. So either a resistance uniform or like a deck officer. Yeah. Like I want to wear a uniform of some description. That would be fun. So either like the resistance uniforms that they have or like a first order Imperial uniform or even like a Clone Wars era deck officer uniform, just some sort of uniform would be cool to actually wear. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, let's move on to Bo-Katan. I know everybody's favorite character. We, we're going to talk about this for at least another Our hour. Our problematic so fave. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about Bo-Katan Cries, played right. by Katie Sackoff. Bradley, you want to tell us a little bit about Katie Sackoff? Yes. Uh Known in the nerd world, I guess, uh, would be Battlestar Galactica as what she's most known for. Um, I, funny enough, I did not know her from that. Uh, back when I worked with Adult Swim, I knew her most from, she is the voice of a robot chicken character called mm-hmm. Bitch Pudding. Um, so funny enough, that's what I knew her from. I did not know her from anything else. Um, but I saw the Battlestar Galactica thing and I was like, oh. I've heard of that. I just, I've never seen Battlestar Galactica. Well, fortunately, Aaron, you have actually watched Battlestar Galactica, I believe. Is that correct? That is correct. I did the math. And after 20 minutes of doing math, I realized I was 11 or so when Battlestar Galactica first started airing. And I watched it start to finish as it aired the sci-fi channel and so Battlestar Galactica, the, the reboot of the 80s show had a big impact on me just because it was what I was watching every Friday night and one of my favorite characters was Cara Thrace Starbuck who Starbuck's a great character uh fascinatingly enough in in my opinion uh the character in the original show was male and she plays this gender bent version of the character and she's this hard drinking ace pilot it's great it's great it's great um she's she was only in her early 20s when she first started on the row on on the role in 2004 and she hadn't done I looked up her filmography and she hadn't done a bunch but she did such a good audition 
like mm. she managed to pull off this character they weren't looking for someone that young they were looking for someone with a bit more years under their belt she was like 23 or so and she managed to carry off this like complicated like tomboyish character with all this trauma and everything she's just a very good actress and 11 year old Aaron was just staring at the screen like why can't I stop looking <laughs> I can hazard a guess as to why <laughs> why do I want her to arm wrestle me and just like <laughs> flip me over her shoulder and throw me on the deck <laughs> I don't understand yet. We, we don't have to impact that right now. Now, Aaron, the question that I have for you about mm-hmm. Bo-Katan is, is you had said, you had indicated to me that you deliberately wanted to come in with just the knowledge of Bo-Katan from the Mandalorian. That you didn't want to, you didn't, before you recorded this, you really didn't go in and look up a lot about her in the other shows. What, what was your impression of Bo-Katan just based on that knowledge? Well, that statement was mostly based on the fact that I went, oh, I should do some research on this character and fully understand that. Oh no, there's too much. There's too much. I don't have time to do this. <laughs> I only have a few days. She's uh, been in a lot. Yeah uh let's just uh go in uh you know as the the control uh participant and go in based on what i've already heard of this character and my memories of my first impression of her so my first impression of her as i was watching i had no idea who this character was uh yeah but uh watching this initially uh when i first watched it whenever that was because time is flat circle who knows when that was I was like oh she must be important because she's being treated with a lot of gravitas hello I I'm Bo-Katan Kreese of Mandalore I fought in the purge and then the whole time I'm like she seems important <laughs> she does the whole uh, list your name and titles thing Interestingly, to to address what you just said about the airing, this episode aired on November 13th, 2020. That might be why you are struggling to get back in that mindset, because we all remember November of 2020, how that was. That's crazy that that was just like, I know, it's it's hard to remember. The presidential election of 2020 took place on Tuesday, November 3rd. This episode aired 10 days after that. Remember we talked about the episode zero about the time in this, which this season came out. That's true. Because if you think about it, 10 days after an election is still too soon to theoretically call it, right? They're still fixing stuff or did we, did we call it? They had called it traditionally. They traditionally, they call it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. right, but this was an Plus, untraditional. This is an untraditional election. It took about, I think, probably five, four or five days after this election. Time loses meaning. There was some whiskey involved in the presidential election of 2020, but it was several days after. I think by this point, most major media outlets had called the election for Joe Biden. Okay, okay, okay. That's so yeah. strange. It's just weird dating this stuff because you don't 
think about it. You're just like, I do remember though that Mandalorian during at least the month of November and December for 2020 was my escape. I mean, that was like, mm-hmm. oh, I yeah. look forward to that every week. It was like, oh, I need something other than, you know, the news to watch. Like we were watching like the news and then the Mandalorian. Like that was it. Like that's all I was watching. Oh yeah, so, 100%. 100%. The one little bright spot. The one little of, spot of joy. Exactly. Of disaster. And then they called the election. We're like, Great, it's gonna be okay then. Nothing, nothing. Yeah, first <laughs> we get both. That will happen. Right, first we get the uh, the elections called, and then Bo Katan shows up on the Mandalorian. So basically, everybody's life by this point was like is starting to get back on track. Everybody's like, all right, we're heading in a good direction. <laughs> so, from what I understand, Bo Katan was elected president of the United States. <laughs> it was unanimous. Well, well. Well, close. We're, we're gonna see where this goes, right? Bo-Katan. This episode is called the heiress, mm-hmm. and Bo-Katan's motivations are revealed in this episode throughout the episode. Mm-hmm. But the episode doesn't explicitly state who she is, why she has a claim to the the position, and what's really interesting about what she wants to do given her history. Uh, Bo-Katan, in brief, uh, does have the gravitas that Aaron assigned to her uh, when she first witnessed Bo-Katan on screen and was like, this lady is important, but I couldn't tell you why. Bo-Katan... the actress. Bo-Katan Kreese is the sister of Satine Kreese, who was the Duchess of Mandalore during the Clone Wars. And Satine Kreese was quite famously insistently neutral through the Clone Wars. She would not pick a side in this war at all. That was her whole thing. She was also uh, in love with Obi-Wan Kenobi, which was reciprocated. Uh, They had a little something, something going on. Uh, But she was killed... Uh, and Mandalore fell into the hands of Death Watch, and then by way of Death Watch, Darth Maul. Bo-Katan finally joined up with the Republic to launch a counterattack, and as soon as they took back the planet, uh, Order 66 came through, like several hours later, after the planet was retaken. She shows up again in Rebels, leading eventually a Mandalorian resistance, Uh, that will eventually, as we know from the show The Mandalorian, is eventually crushed. Most of the Mandalorians are killed, and Bo-Katan goes into exile. Mm -hmm. That is a super abridged version of what she was up to (laughs) in the past. But her claim on the throne is that, firstly, that she was the sister of the Duchess, but she also has an interesting other claim because she was a lieutenant to a guy named Previsla in their uh, organization, which we'll touch on in a second. Prey Vizsla did, I think, claim the title of Mandalore briefly. Uh, he was the previous wielder of the Darksaber, mm-hmm. and he was killed by Darth Maul, and Darth Maul took it and declared himself the leader of Mandalore. Although I don't think he went as far as to declare himself Mandalore. I don't think he could do that. But So she's she's been second fiddle to a lot of leaders of Mandalore, the planet, in the past. That is a super condensed version of what happened. 
No, that's helpful because uh, after my initial watch of it back whenever that happened, who knows when, I ended up looking up, uh, who is this person? I Probably because Charles was like, oh yeah, that's a character from the Clone Wars and Rebels. I'm like, here's the specific episodes that you can watch to see her in them. I was gonna say, I'm sure there's a really cute YouTube video out there of like, who is Bo-Katan Kryze? And then like, you, it'll go through the whole entire history of who she is. Oh, like, I'll, you know. mm-hmm. I'll guarantee you with 99.99% certainty that Star Wars Explained has done that. Oh yeah, there you go. You could just watch I'll that. bet you with 100, one, almost 100% certainty that, that Star Wars Explained has done that. That's kind of, that's a lot of his bread and butter is making videos to answer those questions. I did at the time watch one of those type of videos to be like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay, just give me an abridge. Just give me an abridge. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it really overwhelmed me. I was like, I'm going to have to watch this whole show. So your uh, summation, you're very succinct. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an easy way to think about it is she's basically been second fiddle to two separate leaders of Mandalore the planet who are actually in conflict with each other. That's it's like one she of those is. royal family messes that happened at the turn of the last century in the lead up to World War One is what it reminds me of. Oh yeah, if you look at Mandalore politics, like it's the Kreis family and the Vizsla family, it's all family based too. Like you have the Kreises and the Vizslas and the Wrens and these different noble houses. Well, it's very Game of Thrones, right? Like, it's very, like, there's these houses are all very important. They all have control somewhere right. in this, we'll call it a country, or in this case, a planet, you know? And so it's very much like they're all kind of inner fighting with each other to seize control. So it's like, it's very actually. And she's, mm-hmm. she's really the last one right. left. Well, to, she said that, right? She's the last of her line, but she's also the last one. Because we've met a guy, we've met a, a Vizsla in season one. Yes. Uh, but I... I his name, but yeah. Yeah, but she's probably one of the best. I mean, the episode is called The Heiress. She, now depending, because here's the thing, right? I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat for a minute. There's yes. another character in the Clone Wars. Bo-Katan has a nephew. Bo-Katan's nephew is also stated to be Satine Kreis, who's the former Duchess of Mandalore's nephew as well. Who is their sibling? What an excellent question. I'm so (laughs) glad you asked. We see absolutely no indication that either of these women has another sibling. Oh, so it's like her secret child. The theory theory that I am 100% on board with is that Corky Kreis is Satine cries and Obi-Wan Kenobi's illegitimate son. Yes. That makes sense. So we could be dealing with a uh, uh, an Aegon Targaryen situation a from A Dance of Dragons, right. where there is a, uh, an and by which I mean Aegon, yeah. is it Aegon or A? Yeah, I think that's right. That's right. The fake, the fake prince from the book, A Dance with Dragons, not the TV show, uh, uh, character he was excised but yeah uh she has a nephew who by all accounts should still be alive because he'd be like in his oh lord he'd be in like his 40s at this point well and again not to 
keep bringing it back to Game of Thrones, but this is kind of the show that people would want to see, right? Like if you just, Mm -hmm. if you want to do like a spinoff of The Mandalorian and you want to just focus on The Mandalorian characters, if that's kind of where they're going with this, you could focus on Bo-Katan and just all the houses and stuff and like all those characters and just expand on like do a Game of Thrones style show. And then you could have it be like, hey, by the way, there is this illegitimate heir that technically has claim to the throne that nobody knows about or they know about, but they don't know that he's like the direct like line of ready to be ascended to the throne. You know, George isn't involved anymore, Dave. Uh, There's no George around to tell you that you can't have Obi-Wan Kenobi have an illegitimate kid. Uh, And you know, High Republic establishes that the Jedi do bang. Hey, we don't know anything about the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. So theoretically, maybe that's what they've been doing this whole time is like, they're like, hey, this is what this show is going to actually be about. Game of Thrones, my understanding is that it's very heavily influenced by the real life War of the Roses, which was a big ass succession crisis in England. Yes. Really Britain. And it was very much one of those like a couple families there's some royal bastards involved. There's a whole uh-huh. religious crisis. Uh-huh. Who does what? And in order to have that kind of conflict, you have to have an established empire or nation state. Based on what you're telling me about the situation with Mandalore, it really reminds me more of the way that it, this is this is a a, a planet that's already fallen. Yeah, and you've got these these groups in diaspora, these, these yes. coverts uh, running around, each with their own different way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't do enough research to really back up my thoughts on it, but uh, this is definitely something that we saw after World War One, uh, when it was groups wanting to build a nation state based on their particular set of beliefs, extremist or not, that tore apart what was then uh, Austria-Hungary? Like, no, we want to do a Croatia. And then an archduke gets shot and it all gets rolled into this bigger crisis. And at the end of the day, it's all of these smaller ethnostates. They, they, they don't, they, they can't be concerned about a succession crisis. They're trying not to just die by genocide. Let's now, switch gears to uh, Children of the Watch because she does yeah. bring that up. Interestingly, piggybacking off the Mandalore, right. the way of the Mandalore is mentioned by Den as being, and we've heard it in the past in season one. Mm-hmm. It's mentioned by Dan as being the thing his covert follows because we learn, thanks to Bo-Katan in this episode, we learn the reason why Dan's Mandalorians seem to be more dogmatic than the Mandalorians we've seen in the past. The reason being is that Den was taken and raised by a group called the Children of the Watch, which mm-hmm. are... Stated by Bokatan in the episode, they're a splinter group that broke off. They want to basically keep to the old ways what they call the way of the Mandalore. And yeah. it's very interesting that Bokatan would know this because they seem to be a splinter group that have broken off a already splinter group of the Mandalorians called Death Watch, mm-hmm. which were a terrorist organization whose stated goal was they wanted to return Mandalore 
to its warrior past. And Bo-Katan would know this because she was a high-ranking lieutenant in Death Watch. Aaron, let's learn about some cults. Let's talk about the children of the Watch and their indoctrinating children and religious dogmatic zealotry. Oh, I have many notes. I have many notes. Just how do I want to go about this? Let's learn about some cults. Well, you know, we can start with, we can start with the sheer fact that when she brings it up, Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. does not recognize what she's talking about. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go, he goes, what are you talking about? What is, he's like, what are the children of the watch? What is a, you know, he basically doesn't realize he's in a cult. So Mm -hmm. that would be a great place. He thinks he's a part of the greater Mandalorian society. And it's like, right. what, what are we, what is, what is this? What's going on here? It's a fucking, it's a cult apparently that he's in. She, she says cult. She says yeah. cult in the episode. She's like, there are this cult that does X, Y, and Z. I, I, I love the way this goes down because I have had conversations like this. Not to lean immediately into here are my experiences as a, ex-fundy but it's it's so well done in the sense that this is how someone would would react to this new knowledge we are seeing being a mandalorian through the eyes of din jaren and that is made very obvious by the fact that this is brand new information to the audience and to him that there are other ways to be a mandalorian and two the the narrative that is well known about how Mandalorians just are in their culture and everything. We see no reason, if, especially if you're going in as someone who doesn't know much about the past lore. You're like, yeah, I mean, this checks out. I mean, we never see other Mandalorian characters without the helmet if you've just seen the movie. So this makes sense, but... We see Django and Boba without theirs in Attack of the Clones. But if you're watching just the original trilogy mm-hmm. no boba never takes his helmet off exactly it, it's a, a reasonable thing to have in mind and cults if you really want to do a cult and indoctrination right you want to get them young you want to completely limit their exposure to outside knowledge same goes for an authoritarian political state of course but we're doing a little bit of both a little of a, a little of b you want to limit their understanding of the outside world, you want to erase their personal identity. Kind of like leaving your helmet on all the time. Right. Yes. You are not an individual. You are a Mandalorian. And Mm. we all look the same. We have a uniform. We are all part of this one group that is persecuted by society. And especially, especially isolated separatist cults in real life if you want to get your cult off the ground you you get as far away from civilization as possible because you prevent you 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 keep the cult members from having a venue or means of getting out i mean that's why there's so many various uh cult splinter groups that settled the american west theoretically if you pack up a bunch of people and move them out to first Missouri and then pack them up again when you have to leave town after being declared a... This is totally hypothetical, by the way. This is totally hypothetical. This is totally hypothetical. If you we are not hypothetically talking about a had to, group. If your cult leader were, were murdered in jail and you had to skip town to and, and go out to Utah, the, uh, 
controlling outside knowledge. And in this situation, it's easy to limit this uh, your cult members' outside knowledge if most of your people have been murdered in a genocide of some kind. They have no other frame of reference. And I know that one annoying thing about the show, unfortunately, is that the code, the way of the Mandalore isn't written down anywhere. We have talked about that in previous episodes. Like what exactly is in the Mandalorian creed? And we talked about, particularly in episode one, like is it a type of thing that people view like as something you have to follow every letter in it exactly? or you can take the broad overarching, or there's different interpretations of the Mandalorian Creed depending on who you ask. Yeah, a lot of longstanding old religions, especially, their doctrine is preserved in oral history. And if you're a fundamentalist sect, not having it written down anywhere really benefits you because Mm. you can pick and choose what you tell your members. If you, for example want to direct them to do certain things like return Jedi to their group or do other things that you don't want to do. And maybe I imagine it would be useful to have, for example, a a phrase that you could say uh, that basically communicates that this is how you need to operate. Uh, This is, you know, for example, the way to do things and not have a written down code to go, is this really the way though? When you're a member of a cult, you don't know you're a member of a cult. The way he's interpreting this is all Mandalorians wear the helmet and follow the way. They've taken off their helmet. They're not real Mandalorians. And, you know, Bo-Katan's reaction is indignant to this Mm -hmm. when he says you're not a real Mandalorian and she's like I'm Bo-Katan cries right she's like I'm literally she's like I'm literally I am literally (laughs) Mandalorian royalty like how dare you Mm -hmm. and of course when you're talking to someone who's embedded in a fundamentalist cult like this you you can't really argue with them all you can't appeal to logic because their logic is only only functions internal to the cult right like we we talk about the idea of deprogramming a lot lately Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and as it relates to the second season of the mandalorian the idea of deprogramming someone from a cult or an extremist group and the way you actually have to go in and talk to them and we actually see as the season goes along, particularly since Din is isolated from the reinforcement of his cult values. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, if you look at a modern day cult or you look at a modern day extremist group like this, Mm -hmm. you look at something like that, they're very particular about wanting you to keep in contact with them. And don't talk to outsiders. And don't talk to outsiders limit your conversation with outsiders as much as possible and the reason being is that that keeps you isolated in the way that religious groups from that would move out to remote areas it's the same deal because when you get in and you start talking to people who are not in your group you might start to get deprogrammed which raises the question of is there a written down mandalorian creed or is he just going by what the armorer who seems to be their leader, or at least a, a person in a position of authority, 
is saying to him. You see him justifying things because he's operating through this season on the word of this authority within his his faction. And he starts kind of, I imagine himself making excuses to himself like, okay, yeah, I'm doing this thing that is technically breaking the commandment, but it's in the service of the greater ideal passed down to me by my spiritual leader. Uh, the end will justify the means. Because Operation Sender, we mentioned Aiden Versio, uh, whose actress appeared earlier in this episode as the nostrils of the, the Mon Calamari dock worker. She, again, went through very similar things. And you see it with the Imperial defectors a lot, that they're all in for the Empire and then the empire does something and like the scales fall from their eyes are like oh mm-hmm. oh this was bad actually and speaking of that uh that's something that the episode gets into later so i'll i'll drop the whole just yeah i was gonna say let's up. put a pin in that because it does happen later on with other imperial yeah, people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i will just say that on my initial watch of this seeing Bo-Katan react to this, all I could think was just, I have had that conversation. It's the conversation of you're someone who is peripheral to the sect or you're on your way out of the sect and you can you can walk back and forth between the two worlds or you're part of maybe the mainline group of this sect. And then you meet the people who share your philosophy and your your historical understanding and so you can speak their language but and you can meet them where they are better than the average person but you can't shake that belief it's so frustrating and we do see later on in the episode we'll get to it Bo-Katan does speak to him in his language later on this is not a podcast specifically about cult deprogramming although If I could get away with doing an episode specifically on that, I would. Right. Yeah, Um, hit me up. Hit me up. I'm down anytime. Headed back, heading back to the inn, uh, Mando is yet again ambushed by squid people, but saved yet again by Bo-Katan and squad. They buy Mando a drink and he agrees to help them steal back some weapons. Before helping the crew, Mando returns to Frog Lady so she can babysit the child. We have our first indication here of Bo-Katan's stated goal to install a Mandalore, Mandalore the the position. Mm -hmm. Something that they've not really had in a long time because Satine Cries was not Mandalore. Prey Vizsla, I can't remember whether or not, he's listed on the Wikipedia article for Mandalore as a Mandalore. Uh, but I don't remember if he ever actually claims the title in the show. And that's it. Right. That's It's him. Uh, he's the most recent one. It's important that she said she wants to put a new Mandalore on the throne. Keep that in mind. It will come up later in the episode. Bradley, did you, Aaron, I know you probably didn't, but Bradley, did you recognize the Gazanti freighter? No. No? no. Gazanti freighters were first seen in The Phantom Menace in the background as Qui-Gon and team walk into Mos Espa. And they appeared prominently in The Clone Wars, as well as in Rebels. They are the troop, car- the TIE fighter carriers that you, you see the ones with the TIE fighters attached to the bottom. Another fun fact, I also own this Lego set. <laughs> so that's where the Gazanti freighter is from. It's This is not our first view of it in live action. But it is our first prominent view of it. It was just in the background gotcha. previously. 
You guys are uh, posting the Lego sets to your Instagram as you go through the subjects, right? Uh, no, Not but we should. <laughs> I wish I had mine. I'm in the middle of a project right now because mine have been in storage for half a decade. Uh, I'm in the middle of a project now to rebuild and repair a lot of them. I, I wish I'd gotten to the Gazanti freighter before we recorded this episode because we could have actually posted a photo. In the um, inn or when they're getting a drink with Mando, Bo-Katan does bring up the sheer fact that she knows where at least one Jedi is. So from what we know, knowledge wise, before this show even aired, we already knew who this Jedi was before its name dropped later on. But we knew the rumor was. mill had circulated. So right. we 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 kind of strongly suspected who the Jedi was gonna be. Right. But let's pretend for a second we don't know who it is. She says, I know to, where to find at least one. So knowing what we know about Order 66 and everything, who theoretically could it have been? Basically nobody mm-hmm. but Ahsoka. Right. There were only two Jedi that Bo Katan ever got along with in any measurable degree. And both of them were alliances of convenience. Uh, there was Obi-Wan Kenobi and Ahsoka Tano. Obi-Wan Kenobi is super dead at this point. Super dead. Super dead. So there's only really one Jedi right. that Bo-Katan could have known. Well, that's not true. She did work with one other still living Jedi. Well, we don't talk about him though, right? We, we don't talk about Ezra Bridger. Well, because technically we don't know where he is at this point. Yeah, like we don't know where Ezra is. He's like That's the only missing. other one. That's right. the only other one that she would have worked with, was she worked with Ezra Bridger. Gotcha. Which I felt like would have been too hard for them to bring him up because then you got to go through a whole explanation about like, what happened to him? Like, where did he go? Like, Where does yeah. Ezra has been a thing for like four years or something at this point? Like, right. they're not just going to randomly do it. It's going to be a thing. It's going to be yeah. an Ahsoka show. It's going to be a thing they're going to build up to of where was he this entire time? I want to say it's in this section. I'm, I hope it's not in the next section. But I wrote down talking about the plan, but not showing the plan. So before mm-hmm. they go off and do the plan, they did talk about it and what their plan was. So I don't and know does if the that... plan end up going according to plan. I was going to say, so let's uh, inform Aaron of your rules. So my rule for the way that I will ruin heist movies for everyone forever is that in general, if people talk about a plan and they cut back and forth between them talking about the plan and executing the plan, like it happens in sequence with each other in the same sequence, the plan will succeed up until the point that they that it stops crossing over. If they talk about a plan and the plan they don't show them executing the plan at the same time if they talk about it and then go do it the plan will fall apart basically immediately i am familiar with the charles rogers <laughs> of i mean if, if anybody's randomly tuning in on this episode and they've never seen another episode before this that is, talk that about is this, my rule so that is the general rule of thumb so i just thought that was i made a Good. note to write that down um that Good. that happened um good to refresh on that because it tells us you know i I think that's a great observation simply because it's true and it makes sense why they do it this way because why would you want to film something twice that is true um i've never really thought about it in that sense in the production standpoint that 
you wouldn't want to film something more than once unless it serves the purpose of like the story there's just a reason Mm -hmm. why you would film it twice but because it's so expensive to (laughs) shoot a set piece like this um so yeah I never thought of that yeah yeah but yeah that does tell us that hmm, something something is gonna something is gonna happen with this plan yeah there's a red flag here get your red flags i love i love i just love the bit in droid tales where watcha is like red flags get your red flags as he's standing behind it <laughs> droid tales is is very funny and it is on uh it is on disney plus so this is my plug to go watch droid tales it is extremely funny it's it's parodies of the original movies interesting i'll have to watch that um so before he does help them though he does take the child to back to frog lady's house her and her husband um and he's like hey can you babysit yeah sure i'll let this genocidal maniac hang out here uh well it's funny because he does say children he does specifically say to him he said be on your best behavior you know what i'm talking about yeah i don't think she knows that he was munching on her i don't think so this proves that he's not which? Well, he he How? walked in. He walked in on him doing it, right? The and he is. he makes him not do it throughout the episode. So, like when they're in the pool and Baby Yoda reaches for the the egg, and Mando's like, "No, no." Right. Rewatching the passenger the whole time, I'm like, "Okay, lady, you went into this X number of eggs. Did you did you think to ask about that or?" Mm-hmm. Of course, of, I'm personally not good at math, so you know. One of my changes that I would have potentially made to the passenger would be to have her call Baby Yoda on it at right. the midpoint, have that be the central conflict of the episode, and then when she saves Baby Yoda at the end, it's more meaningful. But yeah. no, <laughs> she never mentions at all being aware that Baby Yoda's snacking on her progeny. Well, this it is also her last the last cash. group, yeah. So it also know? would make this stronger, this scene stronger, because when one of the eggs does hatch, because Baby Yoda's looking at the eggs again, he's like, oh, look mm-hmm. at the eggs. And then he notices one and it hatches and the tadpole comes out. And mm-hmm. he's like, he comes to this realization like, oh, there's like living, you know, beings in this thing. And I looked this up mm-hmm. because I needed to know, because I needed okay. to know whether or not these eggs were fertilized before he she got back to the planet with her husband or after so i looked it up there there's going to be a little bit of scientifical jumping through the yeah life cycle gotcha right so a normal a normal frog right within within about 10 days of being fertilized the egg will hatch into a tadpole Mm -hmm. so within 10 days so i thought about it and this whole entire timeline of events from Frog Lady getting on Mando's ship, them getting stuck on the ice planet, them leaving the ice planet, them getting to Trask, I mean, we'll just say a week. You know what I mean? So, like for guesstimation. So I just looked this up. Uh, I, I feel like you may have overdone your work a little bit here because they actually state in the passenger that the eggs are unfertilized. Mm-hmm. Oh, they do. 
That is the whole point of bringing them to the husband is because he has to fertilize them. Okay. So then, but see, I I made a little side note of that because I did say that because from the moment we see the tadpole hatch to later on in the episode, we see a more, I don't want to say adult version, but clearly the tadpole has gotten much larger by the end of the episode. And it's Mm -hmm. supposedly the same tadpole. So their life cycle is much faster, clearly, and than a regular frog. (laughs) But I don't know. I I guess it just, it lessens the genocide from the last episode, like an unfertilized unfertilized egg. Right. Because you think of it, if you think of it like chickens, (laughs) like we eat chicken eggs, right? They're not fertilized chicken eggs. And there's no genocide happening if there's no fertilization involved. I feel like you're making excuses for baby Yoda because you have a whole shelf of him on your wall. Oh, 100%. 100%, I am justifying his murder, but I'm just trying to like, because people were so against it, I'm just trying to like bring it back to like, well, it's imagine if he's just eating chicken eggs. Like if a hen lays a chicken egg, they're not fertilized. You can eat eggs all day long and it's fine, but you can still fertilize those eggs and turn them into baby chicks a sapient species but bradley has made a a stirring logical defense of baby yoda i was trying i was trying well and then Uh, the other thing too was that i also noted that or when i was doing my research on frogs which i did way too much clearly um so glad you did because i almost did (laughs) well i noticed i i read somewhere that frogs will not lay their eggs until they're ready to be fertilized so that's Mm -hmm. why i thought beforehand the only reason why she even had eggs in the canister was because she had already laid them because her husband had already fertilized them. So that's why I was like, mm-hmm. oh, did he, you know, he fertilized them and then he had to go ahead, like to prepare for the baby room, I guess. I don't know. And then now, obviously, since you said they explicitly say they are unfertilized, I guess the rules don't apply. They're not the same, obviously, to human or not human, uh, to our real world frogs. So Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think we're talking too much about frogs, but next up, Bo-Katan's crew uh, attacks the ship to steal back the weapons while the bumbling Empire can't do anything right until some are blasted out of the cargo bay. They can't do nothing right. You've got this older guy who's the Titus Welliver character, mm-hmm. who's clearly older and has been in the Empire. But then you have these other guys, particularly the blonde guy, who are clearly much younger. This guy can't be more than 25. The pilot, yeah. The pilot. He can't be more than 25 years old. Mm -hmm. So you've got these new Empire people that have joined up, probably joined up shortly before or immediately after the destruction of the second Death Star and the death of the Emperor. Right. So you have people in the Empire now who have joined up this Empire without an Emperor. Mm-hmm. And you see in the way that the the Titus Welliver character actually acts later on, and we'll get to it, what he does later in the episode is a very true believer. I've been in the Empire for 20 years right. moment. Mm-hmm. So I find it interesting coming off what Aaron was saying about get him young, mm-hmm. get, him, uh, get him indoctrinated, get him in there. The Empire is still doing this chuck them into military school really early on put them on uh the officer track commission them right tell them they're special tell them they right 
they can rise through the ranks of the empire, tell them that they're gifted, send them to the Imperial Academy on Corita. I just think it's really interesting, the dynamic of this bridge crew and how disjointed yeah. they are compared to Bo-Katan's team. Right. Well, and this is why out. I want an Imperial Academy show, right? Like yeah. this scene, this entire scene alone makes me want a pure, like every character on the show is in the empire because it shows you all the different aspects and levels of the empire. So like you have the very competent people who are generally at the top. And then you have the mid-level people who are incompetent, but they're there usually probably either by like their family is rich or like whatever, you know, is why they're there. And then you have the people at the bottom who are like this kid who's like clearly a very new to his ranking or like he's he's a pilot but he's like he's probably very fresh out of the academy or something so he's very he's scared pilot. he's a, in a specialized role right which very much like uh how you would train someone from a very early age to be doing a particular role on a ship in our world uh piloting it's uh yeah uh i mean royal navy they you could start off as a midshipman when you were 11 or 12 mm -hmm. you the historical down. the historical royal navy like master and commander far side of the world is such a fucking good movie so good like this movie is so fucking good and part of the reason this movie is so fucking good uh is because they accurately show that organ particularly military organizations and particularly around that time they would get people very young they would you would yeah. be a midshipman at 12 13 years old and that yeah. was your thing you were being trained to eventually now Aaron you would know more about this than I do did was there a pipeline traditionally for midshipmen to uh, mm -hmm. crew or was it midshipman to officership because those it was are two very different things to officer midshipman okay. you hope to learn enough and you'll have other roles on board like uh ship master's mate or something like that but if you're a midshipman you're on the officer track so you are you're there learning on the job studying for your lieutenant's exam and then from there it's you're being promoted through the ranks to hopefully one day a captain, hopefully one day an admiral, but the people running the ship, the crew, they're not necessarily members of the military. Uh, bouncing off this, here's an interesting note. I, I, I got to point this out. So this is after the Battle of Jakku because mm -hmm. the New Republic exists. Uh, I mentioned the Imperial Academy on Corita. They probably no longer have an Imperial, uh, Imperial Academy on Corita. They So at the Battle of Jakku, uh, which was the final decisive battle of the Galactic Civil War. The Imperial forces that remained uh, after the death of Gallius Rax were, some of them were given secret instructions to rendezvous in the unknown regions uh, with the Star Destroyer Executor. And that group was eventually led by Grand Admiral Ray Sloan who shout out to her uh, one of our lgbt uh representatives she is a space fascist like most okay. of them apparently fucking are but she eventually she leads this group to the unknown regions and they eventually become the first order 
the empire that we see left behind are the imperial people that were not deemed worthy of this. Like so that begs, yeah. that begs the question of, of who these people are. How are they getting these new recruits? Where are they training them? They no longer have Brendel Hux, who was the guy who was in basically in charge of the best programming that he he would eventually develop the child programming for the first order my assumption is that the young guys that we see on deck are or on the bridge are the children of the people who are still embedded in which is probably why they're so like uh, i don't know what i'm doing uh, what do i do what do i do uh, no i i definitely he's like I, I have to follow procedure exactly right. i think we talked about in a previous episode we talked about with the stormtroopers in season one we talked about who's the kind of person at this point who's going to join the fascists Right. After they very clearly lost and they're not in power anymore. And the answer is the answer we came up with for the stormtroopers was someone who just wants to be a bully, someone who gets yeah. off on having that power. And here we're seeing a different take on that where you have someone who maybe is in it because that's what their family did, or right. they were told you could eventually rise through the ranks and become an officer and it's easier to do this in this small thing than maybe the new republic that's just an interesting dynamic that i really like uh after mando gets screwed over again because this happens to mando a lot uh bo katan expressly states that it is her goal to take the throne and we know that previously her goal was stated was to put a new mandalore on the throne so by the transitive property, we can infer that Bo-Katan's stated goal in this season is not only to retake the throne, but to become Mandalore. She says, when I take the throne, <laughs> I'm going to need this and this and this. So oh, I mean, by the transitive before, property- When she's like talking him into it. Like, mm-hmm. I never said I wasn't putting myself on the throne. I never- <laughs> I just thought I, I was putting a Mandalore on the throne. I didn't specify what kind of weapons we were reclaiming. A ship is mm-hmm. a weapon. Yeah, because she he says, you're changing the terms of the deal. And I wanted her so badly to say, pray I don't alter them further or whatever. I wanted her to say that I thought so the badly. same thing. But she did, it was kind of funny where she kind of throws the cult thing in his face and she says, This is the way. If you and if you say to them, This is the way, but that's it. It's like this his programming way. and his brain has went, I can't argue with this yeah flawless logic flawless logic i took that totally differently i think i think he's my impression was that's gotta piss him off that's gotta piss him off she's like this is the way well i think he also doesn't have a choice you know like yes he did it probably did piss him off and he's probably more like yeah i mean i have to follow this because this is just kind of like this is when you say this is the way that means like okay well this is the way but also he literally does not have a choice he has to continue right he's on the freighter it's rising he can't leave right that and it going off of uh, leaning on charles's perception maybe it remind it's reminding him well i'm here technically on the orders of my actual authority within Mm. the covert so this is a means to an end of accomplishing my goal if i i i need to get this done no matter what so i can accomplish my goal for the real mandalorians right this is Part of why I had such a problem with the inhibitor chip plotline before Bad Batch. 
before Bad Batch came in and started exploring the angle of what it means to have free will and to not have control over your own functions, I liked the idea that the Grand Army of the Republic, the clones were programmed by their conditioning to such a great degree that they would not question any orders. And then when Order 66 came through, they went, well, that's what they said to do. So right. we're going to do it. This is is kind of that, where we we see this is the way, this is the way forces him to reconcile an action in his brain of, is this the way? Can I make this the way in my brain? And then when he does, he goes, okay, this is the way. The whole season is about deprogramming. It is. And and again, I think her saying this is the way, he's he's not acting on her orders whatsoever. I, I think that if anything, it'd be reminding him of the orders he's already been given because he does not see her as a legitimate authority. Personally, that, that's my personal. Which will be really a funny later on in the season. Right. Um, I do want to... Uh talk about the captains uh, and the deck deck officer real quick so let's talk about the biggest one which is uh the imperial captain he doesn't get a name um it's just imperial captain but um he's played by titus welliver who here's the the thing i was talking about earlier he was also in agents of shield why did i know this was the guy that was in agents of shield i don't know how everybody in this episode is from agents of shield but they are so there you go um he was also here's the other hilarious connection to this season he was also in a show called deadwood oh oh. he was in deadwood with timothy oliphant exactly so not only was he with timmy timothy oliphant in deadwood he was also also in uh agents of shield with He's also in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with uh, our Mandalorian new character. And then, of course, um, Fennec Shand. So I thought that was really interesting how they're all like all these weird little incestual like shows that everybody's kind of in together. Um, so he was uh, one of the ones I wanted to bring up because uh, of that mm-hmm. connection. The other character, the other major character in this scene is the deck officer who is in the cargo bay. Mm-hmm. Um, he is played by Kevin Dorff. Now, this guy has been on, the reason why his, which I find his scenes hilarious, by the way, mm-hmm. um, in this episode, um, is because he's been in shows like The Office, Parks and Recreation, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I mean, he's literally been on like a, a single like episode of every single one of these shows. He's Funny the guy. guy. He's the guy that Leslie Nope punches. I believe so, yes. That's it. I, That's <laughs> you're like, I know his face. I've seen him punched in the face before. Um. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was funny because his scenes, like we were talking about how you said that, you know, these people, the people who are in the empire now are the left behinders, right? The people who yeah. weren't worthy enough to go on. Mm-hmm. He proves this in his scene because not only does he dumb, he's, he's so dumb that he locks the enemy in the control room of the cargo bay. He also just repeats <laughs> the Imperial captain's orders, like, word for word he doesn't even come up with his own like he's literally being ordered he says uh close all the doors you know is what he says or something along those lines the imperial captain gives him the command like make sure they don't get there right and then he literally word for word repeats it to the stormtroopers like he's giving the command himself like he came up with it i just loved just his line delivery tape. of of close all of them all of them just, all of them oh, just close all the doors just do it because he's probably not very good at his job which is hilarious. And then, of course, his time is short-lived 
because he gets sucked out of the cargo <laughs> and i love the realization I too trapped. i have him trapped in the cargo control room <laughs> Right, he's so I'm proud of himself. In the cargo bay. <laughs> oh, and I love the Titus Welliver character because he 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 realizes what he just said, and he goes, "Are you what? are you stupid? Like, are you kidding me right now?" You and then you, for that one minute, you hear the sound of like the wind whooshing over the intercom, and then the one pilot guy is just kind of like confused. He's just like, "Hello." He's like, "Hello, anybody there? Hello, anything <laughs> on?" <laughs> I just thought this whole You're little probably, scene was so funny. It's so funny. It really is. It really is. I really like how they design these ships with little uh, hiding places in the hallways so that when you're in a firefight, you can just tuck yourself in a corner. I was going to mention the hallways, actually. Um, so okay. this this first half of this um, taking over the, the Chicago Bay, they have the shots of Bo-Katan in the hallway are the, some of the most visually like this is where I really appreciated her costume because I thought the lighting and everything and just like the hallway shots of this scene were so cool and so pretty like I feel like you could screen grab these things and that's like every single article that was like Bo-Katan shows up in the Mandalorian was it's from this, this scene. scene because of her mm-hmm. outlining it was very like it reminded me of the Rogue One trailer where they have Jin Erso in the hallway that they don't have in the movie that's like one of the most beautiful most beautiful shots I've ever seen and it's only in the trailer it was like just like that like you see her in the hallway and you're like wow she's like silhouetted she looks really nice like outlined it looks really nice I don't know I just really like these hallway shots it's so good it's so good the way that they film these characters and it it stood out in my in my viewing because the way she's filmed like kind of from below aiming with the waist up she is being filmed the way that at least in in my opinion, she's being she's not being filmed with the male gaze. She's being mm-hmm. filmed like she is a powerful soldier coming in and taking over and taking command. And it's just like uh, I like that because you know it does kind of go into the whole. It is directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, so it is directed by a woman. So it is interesting to see that like you took that from the different angles of Bo-Katan attacking people and like you know <laughs> it was really cool, but. We also saw this a bit with her previously directed episode, the Sanctuary episode. I guess just Sanctuary. We also did kind of see the way that she framed, the way that she framed Cara Dune and the way that she framed uh, the other lady. She has a name, I don't remember it. She has a name. After losing a few troopers, uh, Imperial Captain gets a phone call from Moff Gideon. The group makes it to the bridge to stop the ship from crashing and the Imperial Captain dies by suicide capsule in his mouth. So Moff Gideon FaceTime. (laughs) Yes, the moff gideon uh zoom zoom call meeting with the bot i found it interesting the subtitles actually when he says the line are these the same pirates that attacked our other vessels the quotation marks in his in the line are in his voice but i noticed it through the subtitles of pirates that attack the other vessels where yeah he knows he knows it's Bo-Katan and he knows what she's doing right it's almost like a not a code name for them but like he's kind of trying to legitimize their operation by calling them pirates so being like are those the same thugs that attacked us are those the same bad guys that were trying to steal our weapon it's like if you get the mob puts a hit out on you and takes down some members of your organization, you're like, okay, and these are the same mm. gangbangers. Mm. 
Okay. Yeah, it's, it's almost an attempt to the way that they call the Alliance to Restore the Republic terrorists right. and rebels, mm-hmm. that they're not legitimate. They're not a legitimate government of Mandalore that's trying to retake its planet. They're they're just pirates that are attacking mm-hmm. attacking or, our ship. Or again, it's just code for anyone listening in on the comm, like the rest of the people present. This is a need-to-know basis without specifically saying it's them insurgent Mandalorians. Those that death was brutal though. When he like shot it like cyanide pilled. It, it was confusing what yeah what he did because i was confused i first i thought you're right i thought it was just a cyanide pill thing but like his mouth would have foamed up so like clearly this is like a special type of yeah like either, zaps him yeah it, like zaps him in the head and fries his cranium yeah it was very and, like that's what kills him and i was like that's horrifying we know that cyanide capsules are a thing mm-hmm. because right. vimarati has one uh when she's captured in Phasma, and then she also brings it up in Black Spire. She actually almost bites it at one point in Black Spire mm. uh, because the resistance spies. So spies, spies traditionally will use them in mm. case of capture. But it's interesting that this random Imperial captain not only has a cyanide pill, but has one that's like zap doesn't kill him with poison. It kills him by zapping him. Oh, well, clearly it's too late to send reinforcements. Like you guys have fucked up so much that I don't, I shouldn't even bother to help you. So you know what that means. He's like, I do know what that means. So long live the empire. And it's like, that's kind of like back to that deprogramming uh, conversation. This group is like not the same empire. Like this is a different group of the empire. But also real life historical precedent for when it comes to, because they're there to take the ship. One of the reasons we have the the trope of the captain going down with their ship is if if your ship is captured by the enemy that's a tool in their belt that they can use against you if you show up without the ship why would they ever trust you again and so in that case it's there's many times in like maritime history where when it becomes clear that you're not going to be able to escape the enemy you sabotage your own ship and you sink it right because it's better not to have be in their hands than to not have it at all Exactly. And in this case, it's very clear, like, okay, we have to do whatever we can to just destroy this ship. And that's probably going to mean that everybody on board dies too. But specifically with this character uh, committing suicide as he does, it it feels more personal. It's not just we have to wreck this ship. It's I need to wreck this ship. And since I left, because they've won at that point, it's I've lost, lost the ship. I can't go back. I have to die now. And we also see this as a mentality that is prevalent in the Empire. Operation Sender, which will get mentioned later in the season, part of what Operation Sender's deal was, was that you were meant to execute Palpatine's orders in the event of his death to bomb not only the rebel worlds that had helped the rebellion, but you were also meant to destroy planets that were loyal to the empire that had quote unquote failed to protect their emperor mm-hmm. and Gallius Rex spoilers for the aftermath books. Uh, skip this part. If you don't want to know the actual villain motivation behind the main villain of that trilogy, Gallius Rex's whole deal with bringing the empire to Jakku in the first place and luring the new Republic there to engage them in battle was to destroy 
both the empire and the new republic in one fell swoop that was his whole deal was his plan was to use a planetary super weapon that's buried on Jakku to destroy the remains of the empire because it didn't deserve to be there and also strike a huge blow to the new republic so this is something that's deep in the empire philosophy that if if and it's what they did to mandalore they state it's what they did to Mandalore in this episode, or they state somewhere else, I think. I don't think it's in this episode. I think he just says the planet's cursed. But they basically bomb the planet into submission. Because mm-hmm. they're just like, well, the Mandalorians can't be controlled. They're going to keep rebelling. Scorched Earth. Scorched Earth. It. Let's go. Right. That's what they did. and that's We can't have it, no one will. Right. And that's like, you look at the Empire building the Death Star and destroying Alderaan with it. Uh, there's an alternate universe. I think it might be the sequence from... I think it might be the, the alternate history sequence from the Last Jedi novelization where they actually take the Death Star and destroy several other planets, including Mon Cala and Chandrilla, which is where Mon Mothma was from who she was the the planetary representative of in the Senate. So it's definitely an interesting thing that pervades the empire, this mentality of we would rather destroy something than have you have it. She also, uh, she mentioned she's looking for the dark saber. By name. By name. This is the- This is the the first time we've heard the name, but not the first time we've seen it. Aaron, did you put together that the dark saber was the thing Moff Gideon was holding at the end of season one? Uh, I was aware of it because after I saw season one, I was like, what's that weird glowy lightsaber? Right. And the internet told me it's right. called a dark saber. I'm like, there's a lightsaber. Now there's a dark saber. How many sabers do we have? I just realized that that's what that is. The, the verbiage there, like light the, and dark. The like dark re- saber. The light saber. Yeah. I just, I just got that. That's so random. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Um, it sounded made up it does it does kind of sound made up but yeah but i was aware of that and that he took it from somebody important and oh apparently it's her she was the one that was somebody important yep she was so satine this will be relevant in in episode eight and i'm sure our guest for episode eight i'm not going to say who it is but i'm very excited to have them on i'm sure that guest will talk Mm -hmm. a lot about why it's interesting the way she obtained the dark saber in the first place that she got it and then she lost it to moff gideon and why it's so important that she gets it back a certain way was given directly to her it was handed to her well she it was somebody else had it and that person said, I can't be a good ruler for Mandalore. Right. Here you go. And this will be important later on in this season right. of the show. Yeah. So um, after we learned about the Darksaber, and that's basically Bo-Katan's goal, you know, Mando is like, hey, I got to go. Like, you guys, you've got your ship. Everything's cool now. Um, I need the name. I need the, I need to know where to find the Jedi that you were talking about earlier. And she did something that I wasn't expecting. Like, I don't know if I was expecting them to name drop like they did in this episode. I thought she would just say, like, she because she kind of starts off the conversation, like, go to this planet and go to this place. Go to the city of Caladan on the planet of Corvus. Thank you. Um, I wrote it down. And I expected her to say that part. 
And I thought after that, she would go, there you'll find the Jedi you're looking for. Not, there you'll find Ahsoka Tano, the most famous Jedi in all of the animated series. Like, da 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 Like, you know what I mean? Like, and the currently best trained Jedi currently living. Come right. at me, internet. But that's what I, I was so confused that they were going to name drop her like that because I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're name dropping? Ahsoka Tano. This is a big deal because not only- It was only, a huge deal. It broke the internet. It really did because not only did in this episode did every article ever that existed go, Bo-Katan from the Clone Wars shows up in The Mandalorian. They're like, oh, by the way, she also mentions the Darksaber by name. Also, we get the name drop of Ahsoka Tano, another animated character. Like, this was a big deal. We were made aware that Ahsoka was going to show up. The yeah. official confirmation. Officially, this is yeah. the first official confirmation. If you paid attention to the rumor sphere, you you kind of knew that Rosaria Dawson had been cast as Ahsoka Tano. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the same rumor sphere also claimed that Tamara Morrison was going to play Captain Rex. Right. in the season he did not but so the rumor mill is not perfect but you did kind of have an inkling and when they name dropped it they were like okay she's so gonna like, show up damn. now i thought it would be again i thought it would be the rest of the season i thought she we wouldn't see her till episode eight mm-hmm. that's not what ended up happening this season right i and find it was it, weird that was this quickly that they named dropped her too i find it interesting that after she says go find ahsoka tano Bo-Katan says this is the way again, but she says it much more the same way we've seen other Mandalorians do it. And then he repeats it back to her. Mm -hmm. I find that interesting. He, he, in this moment, is using his own programmed doctrine to acknowledge her as a Mandalorian, even though she removes her helmet. I find that interesting from a, would the Din of early season one have done that? Would he have been able to acknowledge that this woman is Mandalorian, even if she does not follow the rules? It's very interesting. Uh, She goes through this episode really doing a lot to gain his trust early on. Like, she saves his life a couple of times. If you save a guy's life enough times, eventually he's going to treat you as a person uh (laughs) and then i think he responds well to uh praise from uh, praise and acknowledgement from authority figures but also he sees her go through this struggle with wanting i think he he we see him on this journey through the episode he's an empathetic person and he he sympathizes with her and he's like i I get where you're coming from. And he starts, it starts to break down that maybe there's more than one way to be a Mandalorian. Right. And she turns around and she speaks to him again in his language. Uh, Peace be with you. And and, oh, and also with you. So the episode ends with Mando picking up the child from Froggy Daycare and returning to an interestingly repaired razor crust repaired i i think the implication (laughs) of the frog being pink is it's a little girl frog yes i like Uh, that so they have a little girl frog that's adorable uh i actually dig what the the mon mon calamari did to his ship i kind of like all the netting and stuff i don't think he appreciated it as much but um (laughs) 
<laughs> what, oh, she what, has I guess what you get. Right. Clearly. It's a nautic it's a beach theme. It's a beach theme. <laughs> it's it's nautically decorated. It's nautically decorated. Also, this is randomly in this scene, but this random little squid monster was so disgusting and creepy, like that they did this for no reason. Like it was like another squid jumping on Baby Yoda's face, basically. And I was like, they I don't like when they showed the scene where you saw all the eyes looking at Baby Yoda. Because he's looking at it like, oh, this is so cool. And then it jumps at him and the Mando catches it right before it attacks him. But I thought it was it, so gross. It is giant spider season in the Pacific Northwest in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> I have found two spiders the size, bigger than my palm. Ooh. Yeah, the, the name of the species is literally called the giant house spider. No. They get up to about <laughs> four and a half inches across and this is the season where they start wandering around and i hate spiders i know they serve a purpose in our ecological way of life and a circle of life yada 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 they eat bugs i can't even look at them i can't even look at them (laughs) last episode right the naughty white ice spiders at least they're kind of like slimy, so it's a bit more like they're squids, which I can handle. It's if right. they have that little, you know, they're walking. They're walking. Spider. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was kind of an odd. It was kind of an odd thing to throw in at the end of the episode. My my instinct, even though I am an adult, is to be like, "Dad, come kill it!" <laughs> and Mando does the dad thing. That's true. Right. He smushes the the scary critter. That is which, true. Baby Yoda ends up eating because <laughs> of yeah. course he does. Because of course. But I thought it was a funny callback too, because when he eats it, you see the little tentacle in his mouth kind of slurp up, just like Cosca Reeves earlier in the episode, where she slurps up a squid. Because he was kind of looking well. at her in that scene, like, I yeah. want to be that. Right. So I thought I it was interesting that they that. did a similar parallel right there. I want to shout out one of the pieces of concept art, uh, which is the <laughs> one of him in the cockpit. And the the ship is filling up with water. So you have the water in this kind of knee line in the cockpit, but then it's clear the ship is submerged further, so it's leaking. Uh, I just thought that was a really cool visual that didn't wind up in the episode. Okay, was cool. when, when the water was leaking into the ship. That yeah. Clearly that was a sequence they had in concept that they cut. I really liked that piece of, of concept art. That's the only thing I, I really wanted to shout out here. We already de- covered... Uh, Directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, written by John Favreau. I just want to say something I had in mind from my very first viewing of this episode was I am so happy to see a character that is pictured on screen in a Star Wars piece of media, live action, who's a redhead that's not a fucking fashion. She is a monarchist, (laughs) but we'll ignore that. But not like a space (laughs) Nazi, which just makes me happy as a redhead to finally be like, Eh, potential cosplay that's not you know yes a space nazi <laughs> okay i like that okay. yes speaking as someone that's who it. knows what aaron looks like i think aaron would make an excellent bo katan yeah you could do i think you could do the cosplay really well i think you should get on that like you should try to find someone to make you the armor and then you could totally go with yeah. the rest of the outfit you could do it you walk i could see you walking around with a helmet in your hand and you, <laughs> you'd have the red hair and everything and everybody'd be like oh wow that's a really good cosplay I usually keep my hair much shorter than this. And so I've 
as there you go. coaches, I do need to cut my hair so it fits under a hat. So it's a good point. My, Keep in mind. My final thought on the episode is, you know, it it's it's my favorite of the season thus far. Uh, I was going to say ranking goes, ranking wise, where do you ranking put this wise in our- it goes? The heiress, uh, the marshal, the passenger. I also have the same ranking. I find it interesting that the three first three episodes are named after side prominent side characters. Mm-hmm. So we have the marshal named after Cobb Vant, the passenger named after Frog Lady, and the heiress named after Bo Katan. Mm-hmm. Uh, love this episode. Got in, got out, but it was jam packed not only with references and details, but with a lot of interesting psychology and real world history to explore. Mm-hmm. It just, it helpfully worked out that I had, I had asked Aaron to do this one specifically uh, because Katie Sackoff. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but it also worked out that this one had a lot of, of neat stuff to unpack as far as the, the psychology of the children of the watch and how they operate and how that works with real life cults. You know, it's it's a very dense episode. It's short, but it's very dense, and I really loved it. Loves it. Bradley, <laughs> final thoughts uh, from you? No, I just like seeing Bo-Katan uh, translated to live action. I'm glad that you know she shows up again later on in the season. I I was I'm I was scared that like they were gonna do the whole let's only show them one time, never show them again kind of thing and thankfully i am wrong about that in this case uh, with her character um i think she is going to end up being a little bit more prevalent of a character moving on hopefully to season three um if she were to be made you know not series regular but you know what i mean like whereas instead of just a guest star for one episode and a guest star for a second episode i'd like to see her just be a more Mm -hmm. grief carga like character where she shows up a little bit more frequently than a, just a guest star so but yeah i love the episode it's great um and i'm glad to see what else comes through Aaron, you want to do your uh <laughs> you want to do your pluggables like where I can said, the people find you you can find me on twitter occasionally when i remember that oh yeah twitter i can just log in and it's right there in the browser <laughs> yeah uh Araloco. A-E-R-O-L-L-O-C-O. That's the handle. And if you want to talk more about cults and uh, in the context of either the Mandalorian or real life cults and religious and extremist groups, I would love to hear about it because that's about 80% of what's going on in my brain at any given moment in time. Uh, Yeah. I have other things i do but they're all linked from the twitter anyway so if you go to twitter that's perfect. awesome well aaron thank you for coming and joining us and talking to us about uh the heiress and thank you for allowing me to return anytime thank you for listening to gold squadron gaze did we forget something email us at gold at gmail.com you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Squad Gaze, and you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Gold Squadron Gaze, where we post this podcast as well as exclusive video content. Please join us next week and every week for another episode of Gold Squadron Gaze. Aired. Hi, Bear. That one. I'm so sorry. You're fine.
I think the mail is being delivered. Ah, okay. Well, it's very important that we get the mail delivered. So. This was our this was our real guest that we wanted on. We wanted Bear. Right. Bear unfortunately He's... only speaks dog. Um, <laughs> he speaks dog. Bear contribute. Bear has a lot of Bo-Katan opinions. Yep. She definitely does. does. Uh, she's very dumb, but she does have Bo-Katan opinions that are all very correct. They are work, 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 work. 